0: Good morning, Boker Tov. Great to be back together and studying the Parsha together. I want to thank our generous sponsor for the Parsha series for the year, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning should be of Manish. Also, this morning's particular class is co-sponsored by Mayor Berkowitz in commemoration of the earth side of his beloved mother, Rachulaia Basve, and Barbechayan Evelyn Fuhrer to express their Kar Tov to Hashem for his chassadim and thank their friends and dedication and support throughout Evelyn's recovery from surgery. should have a continued and complete refuel shlema. We apologize for any confusion that happened in the weekly over this. Um, Also, I want to thank, before we begin, you may remember a couple weeks ago, I mentioned I have a friend, who, when I mentioned a Safer that I don't have, The next thing you know, I get the safer in the mail. So we had quoted a Drushas He had just sent me that safer, Drushas Aran. So you may recall, I made a joke. I said, you know, I also don't have a Tesla in my driveway. (laughs) So, before any of you get too excited, I did not get a Tesla in my driveway, but I did a few days later, get an Amazon package in the mail. Curiously, I opened it up and it was a model Tesla. (laughs) So I want to thank Shani Braun. Shani Braun has sent me my model Tesla. So I've been debating what to ask for for today. (laughs) (laughs) What do we not have that we would like for today? I don't know. We'll take a week off of uh, putting the pressure on everybody. We have the privilege of studying together Parshas mishpatem, one of my favorite Parshios in the Torah. Pashas mishpatem, as you know, is replete with countless mitzvos, but not mitzvos and commandments that we think of usually ordinarily, as in ritual law, religious law, spiritual law, Parshat is packed with civil, tort, criminal law. All the boring, legal, encyclopedic, mundane, minutious stuff that we don't really think feels so religious in nature. And so I want to open up with that thought. I mentioned it, I think, last year, but I want to continue with it and bring you some further sources about it, why it's so critically important. Why Mishpatim is what differentiates our religion and our people. And I want to offer a charge for our Jewish educational system, something that I think that we can really, really use. In some cases, some are excelling at, and others, that we need a lot of work. So, Mishpatim begins with the letter Vav. Ve'ela ha We are in the Arts Gospel, Psalm page 416. That Vav, we all learned in school. You don't begin a sentence with the word, and "vela." and these are the Mishpatim. So the vav is a vav Achibur. It's a vav that is uniting the opening Rashi and the parsha. Already tells us that the vav is connecting us to the parsha that comes before. How is it connecting us? Last week we read about, we heard about, we learned about, we re-experienced, and we re experienced daily Kabbalah, Satorah, receiving the Torah. We revisit. We go back to Sinai over and over and over again. That was the highest high, the most lofty. It's unbelievable. We we're on top of the mountain. Kirshbar who spoke to us, Bechvodova Atmo, unprecedented, unparalleled revelation. Our neshama was on fire. We weren't a body struggling to remember it had a soul. We were a soul that could barely tolerate that we had a body. Our neshama was on fire. And here we are one week later, the lavish button. You're on fire, a ni'ilah, a kumsitz, a miracle, a shalashudas, a simcha, a niggin, something that transforms you, something that elevates and elates you, something that, oh, and by the way, if you hit someone with your car, here's what you have to pay, and if you borrowed and they took the collateral, and if you find somebody who's there, and if you work for six years and you want to stay, all of a sudden, ve'ilah <laughs> The Vav is connecting these two experiences to unite them and as if describe that they are that they are one. So the answer is yes. We spoke last year, and again I don't want to revisit it, you can listen online if you weren't here. But the notion that we already have the last Mishnah in Balabasra tells us that someone who wants to become a scholar, a Chacham should learn civil monetary law, Seder nezikin. If you want to become a Chacham, you learn Seder and You learn all these details, civil, tort, criminal, law. All of these, all of these countless details. Because what parshas Mishpatim is basically reminding us is that Judaism and spirituality are not lived in the clouds. And religious life is not about being inspired. It's not about meditating, and it's not about being moved, and it's not about the spirituality. It's in the here and now. It's in the mundane. It's a Torah's Chaim. The Torah speaks to our everyday life. It talks about interpersonal relationships, and it talks about financial relationships. It talks about when they all go right, and it talks about when they go wrong. It paints a picture of a utopian society, and it gives us the tools to be able to navigate our way through an imperfect society. Imperfect marriage, imperfect life, imperfect business situations, imperfect community crisis. This parsha reminds us the va the Ela, that religious life being godly that the message and mandate of Torah and of Yahadosh are not only in the Neila and the Kumzitz and the Geshmak Shir, they're also in the everyday. They're how we carry ourselves and how we interact and who we are and how we allow our lives to be informed and to be inspired. It's this framework of civil law. It's telling us how to build a society not based on our own intuition or instinct. It's telling us rules not based on our own boych, it's telling us this is Hashem's view and vision for His world. Ve'elah ha Just as moved as you were by the religious experience of Matan Torah and Kabbalah Satorah, is when you leave that base medrash of Har Sinai, when you leave the shul of Har Sinai, and you go out into the workplace and at the gym and in the supermarket and in life, and the rules that govern our morals and our ethics, our responsibilities and our obligations to this world, that Vav links the two, it is one and the same. But it's not only that I mentioned last year, Ve'ilaha mishpatim, but it's much more than just that. It's also that when we study these things, right? that was the part of taking Torah to the outside world. But we also have to do a much better job of bringing Hashem into the base and into our study of Torah. If you go back to Pasha's Vayetzei, I saw an amazing idea back then. When Yaakov Avinu runs from his family's home, and he lays his weary head to rest, and he has this amazing dream from which he awakens, and the Pasuk describes, Yaakov Yaakov awakens from his sleep, and he said, Alas, there's a God here, I didn't know! I was just exhausted, I was overcome with sleep, I passed out, and he wakes up and he says, Wow! I didn't realize how inspiring this place is. I didn't realize Hashem is here, and we discussed what that meant back in Parsha Vahitzeh, but I saw a beautiful Hasidisha insight. Several of the rabbis say, vayikatz mishnasah, that word mishnasah, she'inah can mean sleep, but it's also the word that we use to describe reviewing Torah, study of Torah. Torah learning is l'shanos, is to learn, is to review, is to repeat. Yaakov woke up from learning Baba Kama, Baba Baba Basra, and he said, He graduated 12 years of Jewish education, and he could tell you every detail of the 39 Malachas, and he could tell you the Dalad of Zikin, and he could tell you the Dalad Shomrin, and he went and plowed through all of Shas, and he said, Wow, I went to the Dafyomi for seven and a half years. I didn't realize God was also at the Dafyomi. I thought that's where we had these intellectual gymnastics and rigorous debates. I thought so we analyzed and we unpacked and we plumbed the depths of curiosity. I thought so that where we discussed these esoteric or criminal or civil. I thought, I didn't realize that Hashem is in Loya Dati. A big challenge we have are our children graduating where they can repeat Yedios Klolios. Like an encyclopedia, you press play and they can rattle off information and knowledge and stuff. But is God in the information? Is God in the data? Is God in what can be repeated by memory from rote? So, okay, if you're learning about Yom Kippur and Shabbos, and you're learning Pnimi Torah and you're learning about his and you're learning Amun and bitachon, of course Hashem is Bamakom Hazel. He is the topic of conversation. But what about when you walk out of the basement Medrash, and you just spent eight hours, 12 hours, 15 hours, and you're talking about somebody, it's in our parsha. digs a hole in a public thoroughfare, one dug it, nine tfachim, another came and he finished it off, the 10th tefach, who's liable if someone falls in, what if one dug it, Last week, I had the privilege of being in to and I went to learn with my son-in-law, which is among the greatest joys that there possibly could be in life. And I uh, went so we'll with him, he's learning in the mirror. I went to Shir with him one day and they're learning Baba Kamma. Many of the yeshivas in Yerushalayim, they're learning Baba Kama And that was the suya. And it's amazing. And his love is the passion, the enthusiasm, the sheer numbers of people learning. If you're not moved by it, it's a Kabbalah Satoru, you're back at our sinai It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's not a criticism of him or them or anyone. It's a challenge that we all have is at the end of that whole day. We saw the Tseis and the what Rab Chaim said, Reb Shim say, and what Reb Nacham saying, what did this one say, what did that one say, and the different intellectual, how do you understand it? And is if someone dug a 10 Tvachim and someone else expanded it to 20 Tvachim, someone fell in, well, the 10 was enough for them to die, but the one who expanded it made it even more lethal. And is that similar to the person who throws the pitcher off the roof and someone else came and smacked it and broke it before it hit the ground? Did they break the pitcher, or was the pitcher already broken because it was moving towards Mother Earth and it was going to already break? So it's as if it was broken and they broke a broken thing and therefore they're not liable it's fun, it's fantastic, it's amazing. But you could go an entire zman. You could go from, from after Sukkot until Pesach, and Hashem bamakom hazeh. what about Hashem? So so why is it, and what is it that we're doing? And they're succeeding at it, in Baruch Hashem, we're all succeeding at it, and I have nothing negative to say, but I want to share with you an insight, Rebbe Salavichek. He says later in the parsha. If one person's bull strikes another person's bull. If your car bangs into someone else's car, who's liable? Right? In American law, it's always the person behind. Even if you stop short in front, whoever was behind was responsible to be, not always fair, but that's, uh, that's the law. So what is it in Halacha? One person's bull damages another bull. Where's the chi of come from? Again, if you haven't tasted, learn the geshmak, The geshmak. My son-in-law's Rebbe, I went to share with him on Thursday, he said a Lashon I loved, it st- stood in the aw Shabbos. And it came so naturally for him to say, he's in the of, of Rav Reznik. And he said, he gave over some beautiful lambdas, and then he said, I'm giving you gishmak lambdas, I want you to digest this as your own Shabbos. This is your Shabbos meal, this gishmak lambdas. It was great, the, the excitement, the joy, it's amazing. It's amazing. So the Rav writes, Martin Heidegger, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century, taught ethics and spirituality at the University of Berlin in the early part of the 20th century. Yet, when Hitler rose to power, he and a large coterie of his peers were among the first to embrace Nazism. The study of ethics alone cannot mold an ethical personality. The study of Torah, on the other hand, does accomplish this. Gedol Yisrael represents spirituality, refinement and conduct, sensitivity, sympathy, compassion. Yet, their primary focus is upon what's known as Lundus, a formal and abstract discipline in the study of Torah. Strangely, study the rules of the ox that gores or the egg that's laid on Yontif somehow enhances the human ethical personality, elevating both the mind and the heart. How does such study affect morality? How is it that you walk out of a very smedrish where for 10 hours you debated who's liable for the pitcher that fell and was broken or the hole that was dug? Or the, how is it that you will become a better person, better husband, better father, more ethical, more moral, better community member? How does it do it? How does it do it? So writes the Rav, there's only one answer. Torah is min hashemayim. It's the word of Hashem. It ennobles one's character, redeeming a person from frivolity, vulgarity, and cruelty. It elevates him, providing meaning to his life. Torah is min hashemayim. It's Hashem's blueprint for creation. So when we sit, it's an amazing thing. And Those learning the we recently saw a tefillah that you say a prayer before you learn, and a prayer you say after you learn, and the experience of learning should transform and we sing and we dance and we hold up the books and you don't see this paralleled in any other legal system in the world. There's no law. Anyone here not a lawyer who's ever recently opened a law book, read it, poured over it, analyzed it, created mnemonics and simonim to try to remember it? Nobody on the planet. Lawyers could barely read the law books. They just do it to be able to graduate, go become lawyers, which is why they got into it. And yet we are a people that so highly endorses, and supports, and embraces, and promotes, and celebrates, and applauds, and lauds the people who pour over those books. And when we finish one of those books, we sing, and we dance, and we hold it, and we make a party for it, and then we go back and we start again. We don't say, I'm done with the series, I put it up on the shelf now, it collects dust. But now I go start again. Because the Torah is the word of Hashem. It's His vision for this world. And the chazanish writes in the Sefer Emunah B'Tachon, which most of us only know from that one chapter on Emunah and B'Tachon, but it's a longer volume. The chazanish writes so beautifully that when we sit and we study and we learn these details, all of Parshas Mishpatim, this is Hashem's blueprint for the world. This is His vision. This is His ratzel. It's what He wants. When two people are having a debate, when two people are having a dispute. I went on Friday in Geula. There's a great store that sells dips. My daughter sent me to, and I was eager to go back because the last time I was in Israel I went to that store, even more delicious than the dips that they sold is they have a whiteboard in the back of the store and there's a Dvar Torah written on the whiteboard. Right. In fact, the owner, when I gave him a for the Dvar Torah, told me there are people who can't afford to come in, they can't afford to buy food, they come because everyone has access for free to the Dvar Torah. The nourishment for the soul everyone has, so he's so proud. Anyway, I went to go buy the dips. The dips they still had, but there was nothing on the whiteboard, so I told them at the cash, at the... So, where's the Dvar Torah? He said, I'll give you the Dvar Torah. And this was the Dvar Torah that he said. The Pashtag in last week's Parsha. I wasn't here last week for the parsha share, So we'll make up for it now with one word. The Pashtag in last week's Parsha, when Moshe is telling his father-in-law Yisro, that's why I had to go last week, because it's the father-in-law Parsha. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't beg me to stay, but... <laughs> anyway, I'm joking. They did. They begged me to stay. It was beautiful. It was great. Fine. Anyway... So Moshe is telling his father-in-law about the system of which he's going to hear the cases and the conflicts and adjudicate. And that's when Yisro, like every good father-in-law, is giving his unsolicited advice. In this unusual, refreshing case, Moshe accepts it and follows it. So Yisro, Moshe tells him that the people, when there'll be a conflict, ba'elai, they come to me. So the Chidusha Arim wonders, why does it say ba'elai in the singular? It should say ba'im elai, they in the plural, come to me. Why does it say it in the singular? Why is it in the singular? So, listen to this amazing Chidush Arim by the owner of the, I think it's called Ma'adane Zahav. Might as well promote it. Nobody has to ship me dips from Ma'adane Zahav next week in the mail. But he said the following Chidush Arim Chidush says that we know this was Harsinai. And Arsinai has characterized the slogan of Arshul. It should have said "Va'yachanu" in the plural. They in the plural encamped. It says in the one and singular. Why? They were with one heart. They were one people. As opposed to the Egyptians who were "Balevachad." Who had one similar goal, but they had had nothing else connecting them, we were connected interpersonally, we were one organic whole, we were one unit, one family, one nation, one people, aside from the shared agenda that we had, but we felt so connected. So the Chidush HaRim says, you know, when you are disparate, when you are separate, when you are a conglomerate of people but really individuals and apart, when you have a financial dispute or a conflict, it's an adversarial relationship. I claim I paid you, you said I never paid you back. I claim you owe me for the damages, you say it's my fault, my ox is the one who gored. So if there's an adversarial relationship, then we're going to come in with a great sense of conflict. But when we come in, so there's no adversarial relationship, we simply have a shiloh. And the same way, if a person goes to ask a shayla, I found the milk mil- the fork in the Fleshic dishwasher, what's the halacha? What's the halacha of What's the halacha on the Shabbos? You just go and you ask a shayla. What Moshe was saying is the people feel so close and so connected and so united and so unified, bo, they come as one to just find out what's the, what's the answer. Why? Because if you're going to a secular court, if you're going to a civil court, and you're having a fight, you think the judge was unfair, and the jury didn't really hear you, and your argument is more persuasive, is more compelling. But when you go to a Jewish court, when you hear the Jewish p'shak, when you employ parshas mishpatim, this is not just individuals, human, finite, fallible people who've come up with the best they can for a social contract and a moral and social society. This is the word and the will of Hashem, the creator of the universe, the infinite and omnipotent. He's told us, here are the rules. Here's how to navigate. Here's how to get to the truth. Here's how to get to what is the most just and the most accurate and the most correct. So therefore, said Moshe to Yisro, when they come, they don't come as adversaries. They come as brothers. They come as one family asking a psak, what is Hashem's will? What is His vision when it comes in such a situation, when it comes to such a conflict? So we have to, we have to remember that. When we're learning Babakamah, Bab Matziah, Baba Basra, when we're memorizing the Lama Tesbulachos, or memorizing the names of the Pashriyos, when we're making our way through all the names and places of Tanakh, when we're testing our children and memorizing, or pouring countless hours in a base medrash, we have to remember that what we're doing is a window into the will of Hashem. We are understanding His Ratzah for how the world should work. This is the Emes. The Gemara in the beginning of Sinead talks about Hadam din Emes la'amito that a judge's responsibility is to be done din emes, is to not only come to the correct conclusion, but come to the correct conclusion for the correct reason. Now, the person shouldn't just conclude that because it makes sense to them. Because you know what happens in a society where, a society of relativism and subjectivism, where judges and lawmakers and legislators can legislate law based on what makes sense to them, You can get a Nazi Germany was democratically elected, Hitler was democratically elected. A corrupt, morally depraved society can come to morally corrupt conclusions if one thinks that laws are are arrived at democratically. Now, of course, we embrace our democratic system, and it's brilliant, it's the best in history, and we love it, and we live by it, and our lives are better for it here in America. But religiously, what the Torah is teaching us is the Torah's laws are not democratically elected. These are the will of Hashem. And Ve'elah HaMeshpatim, what's connecting his back to Har Sinai into civil tort criminal law, laws of damages and financial disputes, is that they too are the will of Hashem. Essentially, they too are a religious experience in the way that we live and the way that we go out. Okay, let's go. With that introduction to Parshat Mishpatim, We have many of the laws. We all know the law of the Eved Ivri. The ebed is a fascinating law. The ebed is a fascinating law. You know, today we have, in, in our secular society, we have police blotters, we have police frequencies, we have people who somehow get some sort of a disturbed geschmack by every day going on the internet to look who was arrested in their zip code the day before, maybe it'll be someone they know, and then they'll have great information, and they can be the first to tell someone else and text and tweet and post, and humiliate the person whose mugshot appears on a police blotter. I know as the rabbi, because I always get the emails from such wonderful, virtuous people who say, Rabbi, I thought you probably should know, so-and-so was arrested last night. Shkart. thank you so much. <laughs> noble noble uh, responsibility indeed. The Torah, Revolva points out, is exactly the opposite. The Torah tells that person who stole from another, pay back. Pay back, make them whole, do tshuva, and nobody needs to know. We're not going to hang your name in the post office, your face. We're not sending out a mass email. We're not posting it online. Pay back. Compensate the person from whom you stole. Do tshuva. Rehabilitate yourself. And we all move on. And it's only when that person can't, that's when their soul doesn't an ivory. That's when the only way that they can arrive at the funds to be able to compensate is by selling themselves as a slave. But if they can afford it, we enable them to do tshuva to repair the damage they had done Without seeking to publicly humiliate, because our system is not punitive in nature, it's rehabilitative. It's a goal to make a person better, to help them recover, and to help them come back. What happens when the person says they want to stay? So we know that we give them a earring. On the ear, we put a hole in there. We put a hole in their ear. So in this context, the pasuk says the following. We bring him to court, Eloha, Elohim, we bring him to the judges, and we put him next to the door, next to the door post, and we put a hole right in his ear, and olam, and now he is and now he is enslaved for now he's enslaved for good. Now he's enslaved for good. So Ravoba says the following. If you look at Rashi, Rashi of course tells us. Why don't we put a tattoo on his forehead? Forehead, thief, robber, low life, We wouldn't have a spell, Eisvarf. That's why we don't. That's why we don't tattoo it. Instead, we give an earring. We pierce his ear. We pierce his ear. Why is the ear chosen? Everybody knows Rashi. Rashi tells us. I'm on page 418, of Kavalev, Palsig Vav. says right ear. Oh small, Tam Ozan, Ozan, Never come outside So we have Shavah from the case of Mitora. This ear that heard at Arsenai, don't steal, You were at Ar-Sinai. God himself spoke. Unparalleled revelation and God said, "Don't steal. And what do you go and do? You steal. So what happens that same ear that heard and wasn't listening? Tirtza, we pierce the ear. We pierce the ear. I saw, I saw, Rashi quote in the Gemara Kedushim that says this. So the Kedusha Arim, the Geh Rebbe says, but which part of the ear do we, pier- do we pierce? We pierce the ear lobe. What function does the ear lobe have? Gornished, it dangles there so that you can hang jewelry off of it. It dangles. You have something to play with when you're bored in class. It dangles there, who knows? If you really want to send a message that the ear that you have that should have heard the message, that ear wasn't listening, you know what we should do? I don't know, make a loud sonic boom in your ear and make you lose your hearing in that ear. We should stick something into the ear, clog up the ear canal, because you didn't listen, you don't deserve to l- something about the ear. Why do we do the ear lobes? You know what the Khidosh Sharib says? What happened between when we were at Sinai and we heard in our Sinai, don't steal? And yet, then he went and he stole anyway. What happened in between? I'm sure standing at our Sinai, everyone said, I'll steal. Me, of course, not terrible. Pasnish, never. And then between hearing, don't steal, and making a personal commitment, I would never steal. And then he stole. What happened in between? So the says, you know what happened in between? You hung out with a bunch of Sunnam and Rekunim. You hang out with a bunch of cynics and scoffers and doubters. And... You hang out with materialistic, money-hungry, grubby people, greedy people. All they talked about was money. And the society that you surrounded yourself with, and the conversations at the Shabbos table that you attended, put this incredible pressure on you. Gotta drive that car, and make that wedding, and wear these gowns, and have uh, this outfit, and do the thing, and go on that vacation. And, go and all of a sudden, you have this enormous pressure to keep up with everyone around you, and to do whatever it takes in order to be able to provide and do that. And you started cutting corners. And now you fill out your taxes dishonestly and maybe in your business partnership you cut corners and didn't report everything that needed to be reported. So what happened is we were all har and we heard those signals: don't steal. And we all said, steal of course not, never, not me. But then we listened to things. We listened to messages and values. We listened and absorbed a culture whose priorities were skewed. And then what happened, lo and behold, the person stole in order to keep up. Says the Chidush HaRim, what should have you have done instead? So he references the Gemara. The Gemara Ksubhaz tells us, why Taka is the earlobe there? Why do we have an earlobe? The Gemara there in Ksubhaz wonders. The whole ear is hard. It's made out of cartilage. The ear is made out of cartilage. And all of a sudden you have the earlobe, nice and soft. What's it doing there? So the Gemara Ksubhaz says, you know what it's doing there? It's there for you to fold up and put in your ear. When you're around someone who's saying the wrong thing, Lashon Hara, materialism, skewed priorities. This is not like a cute vort that your kindergartner came home with for the Parsha. I'm telling you a subas Subazdaf Hey. This is a Maimar Chazal. The Gemarenk Daf says, why is the bottom of the ear soft? So that you can fold it over and put it in your ear to not hear and to not absorb the wrong values, the wrong messages. And that's what this Eved should have done. It's a great insight, by the Chidu So essentially the Khadishram says, what happened in between? Harsinai, don't steal. So yeah, of course, of course, don't steal. And then he went stole. You know what happened? You heard the wrong things, you listened to the wrong things. You found yourself in the wrong places. You found yourself following and listening to the wrong values and the wrong priorities. And you should have turned your ear up, whether literally or figuratively, you should have clogged your ears to not hear the wrong, to not hear the wrong messages. But Avopa focuses on a different. The Gemara gives a second. On the one hand, it says, the ear that heard at Harsinai don't steal and went and stole. That's the Ger Rebbe. The Vogel focuses on the other statement of the Gemara. The ear that heard at Harsinai what? Heard it Zion. Avadahem velo avadim la avadim. God says, you're avadim to me. The only one you serve is me. The only master to whom you owe your time, your resources, your energy, your productivity is me. And he goes out and does what? Makes himself a permanent evid to a human being? So God says, we pierce, we pierce the ear, we pierce the ear. It says Ravul, the essence of Torah is freedom. It sounds counterintuitive because our lives are so highly regulated and legislated that you'd say, freedom, freedom is I could eat whatever I want. Freedom is I can spend Shabbos however I want. Freedom is I can go and say and do and watch and listen to whatever I want. Instead, from when I woke up in the morning, I was told how to wash my hands, the first words have to be on my lips, the order to tie my shoes, and that before I started my day, I have no freedom. I can't even decide what order to put my own shoes on. And you're telling me the Torah provides freedom? And the answer is yes. The Torah is the essence of freedom. Because when we have the omnipotent, infinite, one and only Reboner when we have the God, the master of the universe, the creator of this world, the creator of all of us in it, who knows what provides the most meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment, which gives us the greatest and most lasting joy and happiness. When we follow His prescription for our life, it frees us. It liberates us. It gives us the courage and the strength to not be enslaved to anything or anyone else around us. Revoba writes, I and mean, Revoba would make the bracha in the morning, shallah sani evid, that God did not make me an evid. You know what he have in mind? I'm so grateful that I'm not a person who's obsessed with what others think of me, that I don't conform my life to what the fashion magazines or pop culture or society or my neighbor make me need to conform to be. Shalom Sani Evid, Revoba's Kavana, and I'm offering you, this is a post-sitter snippet on Shalom Sani Evid. We're going to do another sitter snippet later. But Shalom Sani Evid. What a Vulbas was, thank God, it's not that I didn't grow up on a plantation. And thank God, I wasn't enslaved in the Warsaw Ghetto. His imagery of Shalom Sani Evid, that he made that bracha every single morning, was not thank you for not making me a physical slave in physical bondage and servitude, but Shalom Sani Evid, thank you for not making me enslaved to what society says I have to dress and listen to, where I have to go, how I have to be, how I have to think. Thank you for giving me a system of Torah. Thank you for empowering me with a divine plan for how to think and be and say and dress and where to go and what to be. That's what it means. That's what it means, Shalom Sani Eved. And that's why the Evid says, Avada Avadan. Hashem says, if you can Fully submit to be an Evid to me, you'll never have to think you're an Evid to anyone else. To anyone else. Your boss is mistreating you, you feel threatened, you have a conflict between what your boss is telling you, what's morally correct. If you're an Evid to Hashem, you have no conflict. It doesn't mean it'll be easy going, but it means you never have a dilemma. You don't have a conflict. It's the ultimate liberation. Hashem is the ultimate liberator, because by our submitting to Him, it's like the Rav's insight. And ala the conversation with the psychologist, he said, why do we not to be afraid? And the Rav said, fear is good. He so said, what do you mean? I make a whole living by trying to help people conquer their fears. And the Rav said, yes, there's one great fear, that if you can live with that one great fear, you will have no lesser fear ever. If we can live with a year shamayim of Hashem, then you never have to be afraid of heights and the illness, afraid of financial collapse, afraid of public speaking, afraid of... You never have anything to fear. Work on the one big fear, you're Hashem. I am. You never have to have any other small fear. Work on being an Evid Hashem. I'm an Evid just to you. In every circumstance, in every moment, whether you're shopping for clothing, choosing where to go on vacation, choosing how to conduct your business, choosing what to look at next on the internet, ask yourself, I'm an Evid to Hashem. What is my Evid and what does my Master want? And if that's a consideration I have, it's the only consideration I need. What's ethical, what's moral, what's just, what's right. What will give him nachas ruach, what will make him proud. Avada v'lo avadim, la avadim. If we can submit ourselves as avadim just to him, we never have to worry that anyone else can ever be a master over us. And we saw that in extraordinary ways. Whether it's those in the Holocaust who were physically in bondage and imprisoned, but nevertheless, remained avadim only to Hashem. Therefore, no one else could own them, even as limited as they were. We saw it in the heroes of the Soviet Jewry movement, who were enslaved but maintained and preserved their own identity as avadim to Hashem, and in that way were able to triumph and survive, and transcend whatever the servitude that others were seeking to impose on them. It's an amazing, amazing insight. So this notion of the Ebed-Ifri, we had the Chiddush Arim, who told us about the ear. Clog your ear, don't listen to the things, because even though we start with the best intentions, we were all at our Sinai, and there we pledged and promised to do everything right and to be perfect, and we could never imagine struggling or doing it wrong. And then we expose ourselves to ideas and thoughts and people and influences, and all of a sudden we find ourselves after the fact, having violated things that we never ever dreamt we were capable of doing. And the way to stop ourselves in between, that's the message of the evan and the piercing of the ear, is be careful, the ear is the entranceway. Be careful. That will mold and shape who we are and the inside of, of Revo. But let's move on. Parakhaval of Pasuk Yud. The Torah tells us the following. We have the din of the Amma of Ivriya, of the female slave, and the Lachas that govern how she's treated and with whom she's matched. In Pasuk Tes. If he's designated her for his son, it's quite a shirach, He should deal with her according to the rights of young women. (inaudible) But if he shall take another in addition to her, (inaudible) He should not diminish, he should not deprive her. This is the halachic source for the marital rights that a woman has. This is what's included in the ksuba. The ksuba is a one-way document. For anyone who feels that Judaism is somehow a misogynistic or biased religion against women, the man does not get a document. The Masada Kedushin does not get to go to the Shmorg. He's stuck at the Chassan's Tish, where they have some like, bad rice and whatever else, few little things, the, the, the hard pound cake and the fake Diet Coke and clear pitchers and whatever else they're serving at the Chassan's Tish. While everyone else is fressing at the uh, limitless sushi and whatever other delicacies, the, the Masada Kedushin, he's stuck at the Chassan's Tish. He doesn't get to go to the Kabbalah Purim to visit the Kala to make a Kenyan Sudra with her, that she says some document that she's going to pledge, that she's going to, her responsibilities. Anyone who thinks it's um, biased or misogynist, biased, it is true. It's 100% biased, it's just in the other direction. <laughs> so the ksuba contains the responsibility. Now, I, I'm joking, half joking, but why, why was it done that way? So there's a big machlok, it's the ksuba da Reis, it's the Rabbanan. We assume it's the Rabbanan, it's rabbinic in nature. And when was the ksuba instituted? It was instituted nearly 2,000 years ago. And I promise you that in Babylonia 2,000 years ago there was no feminist movement that was pushing the rabbis to come up with a document to protect women, to preserve their dignity and to protect their income and their lifestyle. It was not done in response and it's not a form of apologetics, it's because our religion has always, has always concerned itself with the dignity of women, of wives, of mothers, of responsibility for how we treat and take care, and to protect them, and that's what did. You have to understand that before the Ksuba, biblically a man could be married to more than one woman, if he could survive that. So he'd be married to more than one woman. The Rambam said, I, I've been up since four o'clock, I've jet lagged, So I'm not responsible for anything I said. So, so um, the Rambam writes, he can only be married to more than one woman, even biblically speaking, and even Sfarim who did not accept, the Gershom, can only be married to more than one woman. Polygamy, if he can, treat each woman as if they were his own wife, meaning he could provide to each wife. If being married to many would deplete his resources, his time, his energy, his love, then he was forbidden, biblically forbidden, to be married to more than one. The prerequisite to be married to more than one is to be able to provide that for each one. So in that society, what happened? A man would get in a fight with one wife and he'd say, ah, I'm moving on. You're not the way you picture in the resume, it was clearly photoshopped. That's not who you are. And I don't like this fight. And the food is not as good as your mother's, even though you told me you were as good a cook as your mother. And therefore, I'm out of here. So what would he do? He had eight other wives to go to. And now what did she do? What did she do? Who was, who was providing for her? In antiquity, women did not have opportunities in the workplace and to draw their own income. So what was she supposed to do in order to keep a roof over her head or food on her table? He didn't give her a get, which would... He'd have responsibilities through the get. He would just move on. He'd leave it there, suspended. So the Torah instituted this, this ksuba. When he gives the get, in the event of his demise or the dissolution of the marriage, he has financial obligations and responsibilities. This was not a form of apologetics. It was not responding to any, any uh, ism in society. This was the Torah, a priori, concerning itself. Our rabbis have always, and still always, and will always, concern themselves, trying to implement what they think is the Rasan Hashem, Hashem's view and vision for how to set up the world. Anyway, so this is our Pasuk, She Raksu What are these three things? You should not diminish your food or clothing or intimacy, the responsibility of a marital relationship. And these are the components that are contained within the within the Ksuba. And I just want to make this point quickly because I really want to move on to the, um, the main part, what I want to share with you in, in Parashat Mishpatim this morning. But in the Rabbi Salavitchik. Uh, He talks about, he doesn't use this word because there wasn't a hashtag movement in his time, but he talks about the importance of consent. And how the Torah, really ahead of its time, was very concerned that in a relationship of intimacy, in physical affection, that there has to be respect and there has to be consent. And he writes, Judaism does not overlook or underestimate the physical aspects of marriage. On the contrary, Once sacrificial withdrawal from the sinful erotic paradox of change and variety is completed, the natural element in marriage comes to the fore. The two partners owe each other not only fidelity, but they also owe each other full gratification of their needs. Refusal or, or failure by one of the partners to satisfy this conjugal right of the other is sufficient reason for divorce. Each one must observe these laws with regard to the other. The marriage must not be converted into an exclusively spiritual fellowship. Marriage without carnal enjoyment and love is contrary to human nature and is to be dissolved. The ethic of marriage is hedonistic, not monastic. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating insight. What, what the Rav is saying is that the ultimate, the ultimate description of marriage is not one in which either of the partners can say to the other, what do you want that physical affection and connection for? What are you, an animal? What are you, a pig? I heard about you. It said on your resume that you love Torah, that you zag tehillim and say tzana arana all day, that you're sitting in the base all night, that you're volunteering and doing chesed, and now you crave this animalistic experience? It's a mekach What kind of low-life animal pig are you? Said the rav, the person who takes that attitude, who comes with that perspective, they're the one who's wrong. They're the one who's wrong. The party who comes... Recognizing and respecting their own human, natural, internal need and seeking to have an outlet for it in a holy context, namely, with a person at a time and a place and a way and a manner that's elevating, is transforming the animal instinct, which is natural within anyone, everyone, and elevating it to be able to be holy. You know, the Rav doesn't say this here, but the Pasach later in the parasha says, Hashem says, be men of sanctity, of holiness. Not men, be generic. Be people. Anchei Kodesh. Be holy people. And the Kotzka Rebbe, Zechus yogan elenu says, it doesn't say, Malachi Kodesh me. It doesn't say, be holy angels for me. Be holy angels. You should strive to be angelic. There are other religions who depict holiness as abstinence. How do you become holy? A vow of celibacy, a vow of silence, a vow of fasting, by withdrawing from the physical world is the only way that you can achieve holiness. And we come and say, no, the Torah doesn't say, malache Kodesh, li. It doesn't say, try to be angelic. You know what happens when you try to be angelic? You have scandals and lawsuits. And when you deny your own human need and craving and pretend that you can suppress it indefinitely, you get scandals and lawsuits and challenges. Not everybody, but a lot of it. And no one should be surprised. Torah says the Kutskar says, Anshe Kodesh to and You're human beings. And Hashem says, nobody knows you better than me. I designed you. I programmed you. I built you. And despite being Anche, despite being people with human needs and cravings and failures and imperfections, despite being an Ash, an shei, Kodesh, you're still capable of holiness. And that is Shayrak Susava Unasa. When one of the parties craves physical intimacy, a connection, affection. They're not the one who is in the worst position. Well, what happened? Did you not have a good year in Israel? You weren't inspired? You didn't flip out? You didn't realize that that's for the pigs and the animals and the movie stars and the secular culture and the non-Jews? No, we're not malachim. That is for us. It's who we're meant to be and how we're meant to behave. And it's part of the marital contract. And whichever partner in the marriage tries to deny and deprive the other partner of that very basic human need, they lose out. The Torah dissolves such a marriage, the Torah dissolves such a marriage, and that person loses out. The rights which I mentioned in the Torah have to be complied with by every husband in accordance with his physical capacity and occupation. The wife, the wife may prevent the husband from taking extended business trips with interfere with his responsibility to be at home. He may leave town only if she permits him to do so. She may also even ask him for changing trades should the change result in less frequent. Withholding of these rights, is forbidden. Forbidden. onasa. <laughs> Not only material things, the, the ksuba actually spells out that the husband is obligated to provide for his wife according to the manner in which she is used to, and which she was raised. So, more than the picture on the resume, look for the zip code <laughs> on the resume. Sheirak susav vaonasa onasa. That word ona, which we use to describe cohabitation, really means time. It's about giving time and being fully present in that time. Being fully present in that time. Withholding these rights is forbidden. In case of illness or incapacitation, a waiting period of six months is granted. But at the conclusion of the period, the condition of the husband does not improve, he must either obtain her consent or divorce her and pay her the value of the ksuba. If he's not able to comply with time or physically and he can't provide that need, that very legitimate basic human need, then he's obligated to divorce her and must pay the k'suba. And there's another interesting law in the other direction, which is, what if a woman refuses to participate or provide for that basic human need? The Torah has a name for her. She's called a moredas. A moredas means a rebellious wife. And Bayes then ask her, why are you moredas, why are you being rebellious? Your husband says that you're never intimate, you're never affectionate. Why? So if she says, I don't like him, and it's impossible for me, there's no attraction, and in fact, I'm repulsed by him. So Bezdin forces him to divorce her. Why? Listen to the Lashon of the Rambam, for a wife is not a prisoner such that she, she must consort with a person whom she despises. A wife is not a prisoner that we make her cohabit with someone she despises. There has to be consent, but there is a responsibility in both, in both directions in both directions, which is fascinating. That means the physical component of a couple being together has a spiritual result, which is much more than just its pragmatic or practical conclusion. The whole issue with halacha of, of birth control is a complicated area of birth control. But these halachas remain in force even when birth control is not relevant. The halachic responsibility of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband to not be a muredas are true in a case that cannot result in in reproduction in conception if a woman is pregnant and if a woman is on birth control and if a woman is postmenopausal, and all these circumstances where it's not just the practical or pragmatic result that one is seeking but it is the process it is the relationship it's the union which the torah is endorsing as well so in this short section in this one passage <speaking in Hebrew> there is really the ethic of marriage a jewish attitude towards physical intimacy, towards marriage, towards relationships, the importance of consent, the mutual relationship in both directions, the uh, Torah absolutely rejecting any notion that one can coerce the other, that there has to be a foundation of love and of consent and, and so on. Okay, let's go on. And I want to look at Rashi and Ramban inside, because I promised to get back to looking at Moforshim inside. So Mirza Hashem, we're going to do that today. Torah goes on. There's a long list. We're not going to review them right now. Manslaughter, killing a slave, bodily injury, what you owe the person. Where's that pasuk? The five things that you owe a person. Pasuk yitess yitain vrapo yirapei. I had to tell you one one imrechaim. I have to tell you one, one um, imrechaim. So he says the following, the Vishnitsa. What is what is the Vishnitsa? How does he interpret every pasuk? What do I always tell you? For many of the Hasidic serebbers, everything comes back to Shabbos. So he says, You know how shivto yitain." Now the pasuk here is not talking about Shabbos. "Shivto yitain" is Shavas. What is Shavas? From the same word as Shabbos, it means he's rest, he's still, he can't go to work. So you got to pay workman's cap. You damaged him, you incapacitated him, he's debilitated, he can't go to work, he can't earn an income. How is he supposed to live? Shifto yitain, you have to pay to cover the cost of lost wages. That's what the Pasach literally means. But the Viznitzer says, no, v'rapo you know how any one of us heal? We're injured in life. We're injured by people, we're injured by circumstances, we're injured by life. And v'rapo you know how you heal? You know how we find the strength to heal in life? Shivto yitain Shabbos. Shivto, our Shabbos. We need our Shabbos. We need our Shabbos. If one week ran into the next week, into the next week, and we never had Shabbos, Shabbos to eat and sing zmiros and exchange the to Torah, Shabbos to host and be hosted, Shabbos to shluf and to sleep, Shabbos to come to shul, Shabbos to disconnect from the universe. If we didn't have Shabbos, we could never rapo yirepe. So the who says, rak shivto yitain. give us shif- shifto, our Shabbos. Give me my Shabbos. And then I can bear anything. Then I can come back from anything. And then I can heal anything. Beautiful vision too. Okay. Death caused by an animal. These are the Arba Avas Neziken. You can't dig the pit. Property that damages. Payment of theft. Perichav Beis says the following A person steals from someone else and you find the thief, they have to pay back. How much do they have to pay back? Twice as much. They have to pay back KFO. They have to pay back KFO. So, says the Rav, very interesting here. Is this the right POSIC? Sorry, sorry, one second. <coughs> uh, sorry hold on, they switched it, just joking, yeah, no sorry, that's the pasuk. yeah, yeah, same path they didn't switch it, you could, you could exhale. You gave someone something to watch over, these are the source, the rule, the Donald Shaman, we have four types of people who guard, stewards for someone else's property, and the level of responsibility and accountability you have is directly proportional to the compensation or reward you get. So for example, the highest level is a Shomer Sachar, someone who's getting paid to watch. If I'm paying you to watch it, then you're going to have the highest level of responsibility. I don't care if, excuse me, I don't care if, owns it, I don't care if someone stole it, I don't care if someone... Then you have Shomer Chinam, somebody who watches something for free. Then you have a... Um, a show, you have someone who borrows something, and a... and a socher, somebody who rents something. Right? So you have the four different types of, of shaman. So B'Salovitchik here points out the following. Oh. All of man's talents, endowments, and qualities, his very personality are owned by God. Man's activities must therefore be in conformity with the will of Hashem. Man's body and soul are governed by the general articulator with respect to the deposits of personal property. All of one's activities must therefore conform with the directness of the depositor. Where the Torah here says, <laughs> you give someone to watch, they have responsibility. Hashem gives us us to watch. He gives us our body to watch. He gives us ourselves to watch. Yom Kippur man finds himself in a situation analogous to that described in the next Pasuk. A man must convince God that he has not misappropriated the deposit. Right? Because here you have in the very next Pasuk. Torah says, What happens? You don't find the thief, so the owner who asked you to guard the property comes to the judge and makes you swear that you didn't in fact use it. You weren't negligent about it. So the Rav says in the analogy, that's what happens when we come on Yom Kippur. We say, Hashem, I know you gave me me to safeguard my body and my soul. I in fact was not negligent. And that's what we say in the conclusion of the Ne'ilah. Yom Kippur was bestowed upon us so we cease from misappropriating our very selves. Any hate committed by a person constitutes larceny, theft from God. We are the Shomer. We have been given ourselves to watch. We've been given everything we have to watch. If we misuse our home, our car, our resources, our talents, our skills, our qualities, our opportunities, if we misuse them or squander them, we are like the Shomer who has been negligent and lost the item that they were entrusted to steward, to safeguard, to be in charge of, it's a form of stealing from Hashem. But here's what I wanted to share with you, and you bear with me a couple more minutes today. The Rav goes on, and he quotes the story of Rav Meir and his wife, Burya, who were parents of two twin boys who died of an extended illness over one Shabbos. Through the Shabbos, Burya did not tell her husband, Rav Meir, of the tragedy. She didn't want to compromise his Shabbos. But when the day ended, Burya had to convey the terrible news to her husband. So after Havdalah, she told the following parable to Rav Meir. This is all in the Medrash and Mishle, it's in the Gemara too. And she did it in the form of a halachic question. She said to her husband, the great Tanarab Reb Meir, some time ago a certain man came and left two diamonds in my trust. A and I was the Shomer, I was in charge of them. And now he's called for them. Should I give them back or not? So the Meir looked at his wife, Burya, who was more brilliant in some ways than he. Gemara tells us we did a whole class in, in uh, the people of the book on Burya. And he looked, of course, somebody gave you something to watch, it really belongs to them and the term of your watching it has concluded, of course you have to give it back. So that's when Berea said, Kadosh Baruch gave us our two sons to watch, and our term of being a Shomer over them, our term of being their steward has concluded. And as painful as it is, and as badly as we don't want to, we have no choice, but it's time to give them back. And as moving as the story is, the halacha question posed by Briya seems trivial. Was there any doubt that the owner of the diamonds had the right to, be taken, to take them back? The answer is so obvious that a question seems superfluous. Why would Burya ask her husband for a ruling in such a simple case of Jewish law? So, Rabbi Salavitch says the following Perhaps you have to interpret the parable by interpolating additional details into the analogy. A mysterious stranger, his face hidden behind a dark cloak, knocks at Burya's door. She opens the door. The stranger silently thrusts a small box into her hands and vanishes into the night. The puzzled Burya opens the box and is startled to find two beautiful diamonds. She wonders Did the stranger intend to place the diamonds in her trust for safekeeping? Perhaps they were an outright gift. Bury resolves to wait a few weeks to see if the stranger returns. She meticulously takes care of the diamonds in accordance with all the applicable laws of Bikadum as she waits for the stranger to return. Weeks, months, years pass, and the stranger has not reappeared. Burya thinks to herself that maybe the stranger is no longer alive. Perhaps he indeed meant to give her the diamonds as an outright gift. But one fateful shot is years later. Burya is startled to again hear a knock on the door. Hurriedly donning her robe, Burya answers the door. The mysterious stranger with the hidden face is back. He grabs the diamonds from her hands and once again he quickly and silently disappears. This is the story Buryu told her Meir. Unlike a normal picadon where an item is held in safekeeping for a specific period of time as prescribed by the owner, the period of safekeeping for God's picadon is open-ended. He is the hidden stranger who thrusts upon man all sorts of items of value, money, honor, health, wisdom, children. His face is obscured and he says nothing. And We often make Buryu's mistake, we begin to think of God's picadon as a gift. Only later and often under tragic circumstances are we forced to confront the fact that Hashem does not give us these items outright. They are only entrusted to us for safekeeping. If we guard them properly, Hashem may allow us to keep them longer. If on the other hand, we do not acknowledge Hashem is the owner of the pikadon, He may come and claim them even sooner. It's an entirely different way to view, I don't want to apply it to children, so painful I won't even go there, but property. We have items and things that we've lost, and we wonder how could it be that we lost what was ours, but that was our mistake was to begin with, talking about property, I would not do this, though the Rav does. And family, it's all on loan. It's never part of our permanent collection. We're lucky and should be grateful for whatever time that we have with those things. Again, I'm talking about things. And it's a different mentality. Not that I'm the Baal, not that I'm the Bailam, the owner of what I have. I am the Shomer. I'm simply the watch person, the steward, who's watching over and protecting what I have. Okay, Parashat Mishpatim is replete, but I want to finish with one more thing, which is really the major thing that I wanted to share with you. Perch Bez, Pasach And here I want to contrast two different laws. I have five more minutes. And here I want to contrast two different laws. I have as long as I want, but you'll only tolerate five more minutes. Perch of Bez, Pasach Page 430 in the Arts Girl Stone Chumash. And the Torah tells us the following. the lo so nevel lo ki a very, very important law about how we treat Strangers, people who come from the outside, who immigrate, are, are, I'm not making a political statement, but we as Jewish people, the, the um, mitzvah in the Torah repeated more than any other, is our responsibility because of our own personal experience, knowing where we came from, that should guide and inform how we responsibly approach these things going forward. You're not allowed to cause pain, you can't aggravate or aggrieve a widow or an orphan, and the Torah goes in an unusual departure. And here the Torah tells us, so, you know what's going to happen if you do? Don't you dare cause pain to a widow or an orphan. Don't you dare aggravate them. Why? If you do, so, if they call out and cry to me, I will surely hear their cries. And you know what's going to happen? God says, I have no tolerance. I have a zero tolerance policy for people who mistreat the vulnerable. I have a zero tolerance policy for somebody who aggrieves, who aggravates, who mistreats the widow or orphan. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay you back. Your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans because if you can't feel sympathy and empathy and support for someone who's gone through that, and that's the way you treat them, your spouse and your children will know exactly what it feels. Now it's fascinating, first, again, it's amazing, the Torah here goes out of its way to tell us how Hashem is going to feel about your behavior, and what Hashem is going to do as a result of your behavior, and the punishment that will come as a consequence. All of these are really strict, strong, startling departures from the normal way. But there's something else that's unusual, and that is the double language. If you aggravate, and they cry out, it's like Hashem all of a sudden gets a stutter. Everything is double words. Just just cut out three words there. Simplify the Pasuk. Consolidate the Pasuk. What's going on? So the Kotzke says something unbelievable. Kotzke Rebbe says, you know why the double language Because every time you aggravate the widow or the orphan, you're not only mistreating them in the way that you mistreat them, but they are reminded that they are a widow or an orphan. They're going through that experience of when they became the widow or the orphan all over again. You took advantage of them, you were cruel to them, you were harsh, you were callous. You wronged them. Not only did you wrong them in the specific thing that you wronged them with, but when they are wronged, They can't help but relive and revisit their experience of what put them in that circumstance to begin with. And therefore everything is a double language. You're not just wronging them with the one way, you're also reviving the whole pain and the loss of being the and when they cry out to me, says God, they're not just going to cry out in response to the particular way that you've heard them. They're going to cry out also about the bigger, broader picture of what they're going through. And Shamoah Eshma, not only will I listen to and respond to how they were wronged in the particular way, but I'll also, says God, respond to and listen to how they were wronged in the bigger, broader fashion as well. That's why the double language. But now fast forward for a minute and look at the next law. Very interesting. When you lend money, you cannot charge them interest, and you cannot press them for the money. If you take a garment as security, you take collateral from the person, then only until sunset, you have to give it back. So what's going to happen? Some person is going to borrow money from you. And when they borrow money from you, you're gonna hold collateral, what are you gonna take as collateral? You're gonna take their pajamas. So they go home to sleep that night, what do they have to sleep in? You have their pajamas, you gave it a collateral. So when they ask for it, it, says Hashem, you better give it. You know why? Because if you don't give it, and they cry out to me that they had nothing to sleep in, because you held on to that collateral and you didn't give it back, the shamati, I'm gonna to listen to them. And here he doesn't say, I'm gonna to listen to them, and I'm gonna make your family poor, and I'm gonna make you rely on alone, and I'm gonna make you know what it's like to not have pajamas at night. He says, why am I going to listen? Ki chanun ani, because I'm chanun. It's incongruous. If these laws, there should be a parallel in the law. If Hashem pays you back, mida kemagi mida, so He should pay you back. That's A. But B, there's something very unjust about this law. I, let's say, have the money. And you come and you need to borrow money. And I say to you, look, I want to lend you money, but I also have to be responsible to my family. How do I know I'm ever going to get that money back? The only way I can lend you money is if you give me what? Collateral. When do you get collateral back? When you pay the loan. And here the Torah is saying, even though the poor person has not paid the loan, but they need their pajamas. They need the collateral. And God says, and if you don't give them the collateral, you're the wrong. What do you mean I'm the wrong? I should have never lent them to begin with. That I wouldn't be in this position that I'm being criticized and judged. That I was unwilling to give them back the collateral. The whole reason to have collateral is to secure the loan. So why is the other person entitled to get their collateral back and I'm judged and criticized when I don't give it back? And Hashem says I'm going to hear their cries? And ani. What's going on over here? So, open your cross Gedolos, if you have one, very quickly. And the Rosh is clearly bothered by this. And the Rosh writes, Really, the lender is entitled to hold the collateral. That's the whole reason for collateral. And giving it back is only It's going the extra mile. And Hashem says, I never really should have heard the cry of the naked borrower, the cold borrower, who wants his pajamas back. I should have said, tough nuggies. you gave the collateral, the lender's entitled to keep it. But Ani. Says Hashem, when I hear the cry, when I hear the genuine and authentic plea of someone who needs something, even when it's illogical, I can't help but respond. The Rashbam himself is answering. So why earlier when it came to aggravating the orphan or the widow, does Hashem not say, I'm going to pay you back because I heard their cry? He says, I'm going to pay you back because... Why didn't He say it earlier? Because over there, you were wrong. Over here, you're right. You're entitled to hold the collateral. So why is Hashem nevertheless hearing their cries? Because Hanun Ani, He's compassionate, and He's kind, and He's sympathetic. And he can't help when he hears a genuine and authentic cry he cannot help but answer. The Medrash Chazal say that's why we have in, in Tehillim, we have Tehillim that begin Tefillah Laani, Tefillah Ani Kiyatov, beautiful Mordechai and David song, Tefillah Laani, and we have Tefillah Le'Mosheh. Because the Ani, the person who's lacking, who needs, the person whose Tefillah is so genuine and so real and so authentic, it rises to the level of L'mosha. A Tefillah la'ani is at the level of a Lamosha. This is the most authentic. This is the most authentic. The Rambam writes the same thing. HaShem hears our cries and our pleas, even when they're not correct or just. The Rambam says that word Chanun, it's one of the yud of HaShem. The word Chanun comes from the word Chinam, it's free. It's unearned. It's not deserving. It's chanun, it's chinam. <laughs> says the Ramban. What the Pesach is telling us is don't think. You know what? The collateral of the tzadik, I'm going to give it back to him because God's going to listen to the cries of the tzadik. <laughs> but the collateral of the less than righteous, eh, I don't have to give back. Let them cry all night to God. God's not going to answer them. the <laughs> Hashem says, I am a chanun, and as a matnas chinam, as a free gift, anyone who's authentic and real. So, ladies and gentlemen, it was worth staying two minutes later, because I'm telling you right now, I'm not telling you, I'm sharing with you right now, what our rabbis tell us, which is, if you want to access Hashem's graciousness and goodness, His kindness, of course we strive to be righteous, to be tzaddikim and tzedkaniyos. But even when we fall short, there's still a way to pierce the curtains of heaven and to appeal to Hashem such that he can't help but hear. How do we earn his mat chinam, his gift of chanun ani, when we are sincere and real? The reason Hashem hears the cry of the one who didn't get back the collateral is they're cold and they're vulnerable and they're exposed and there's no more real tefillah than that and that's what our tefillahs need to be. They need to be real. That's why we say at the end of Ashray, you know who's close to Hashem? Only those, all those who call out to Hashem how? We call out to Hashem, Be'ems. We call out to Hashem in truth. What does it mean to call out to Hashem, What does it mean to call out to Him in truth? So the Yosef says it means not be'emes, you know, how hard you shuckle, how loud you scream. It's not the fervor and the intent. What it means is all prayers have to be genuine to be effective. What it means is be'emes, you have to be an emistika person. To all who call out. And how do they call out? By being an emistic person. You have to be genuine and truthful and honest. This too we have in our parsha. The Passoc says, Midvar Sheker Tirchak. Midvar Sheker Tirchak. And you know how you're supposed to understand Midvar Sheker? Said Rabzusha, the great Rebbe Rabzusha. You know how you understand Midvar Sheker Tirchak? Midvar Sheker! If you're a liar, Tirchak. You can't be close with Hashem. Midvar Sheker! as a result of Sheker. If you're not truthful and honest and genuine, tirchak, You are distanced. You are at a distance from Hashem. So, be'emes. Our tefillah has to be real and raw and genuine and authentic. And when it is, ani. We get a Mat Hashem can help, can't help, but respond. This is so true, in fact, that when the Kongado Gadol left the Kodesh HaKadoshan on Yom Kippur, we say this tefillah, yiratson we repeat in our Machzer, Musav and Yom Kippur, the Tfil, the Koin Gadol would offer. And he would ask for Shnas Gzerus Tovaz, Mufanecha, good year, Dagan, Latirish, Riyetzar. And our version doesn't have what the Gemara has. The Gemara and Yuma and Daphne Gimel says, Velo tikanim lfanecha, Hashem, The Koin Gadol in the Koin Gadol would walk out and he'd be healthy and alive and he'd say, God, don't listen to the commuters. Don't listen to the ones commuting, the travelers. Don't listen to the commuters. What does that mean? It means that the people who were leaving didn't want the rain. So when we dive in for the rain, they said, don't make it rain, because if it rains, there could be a landslide, it's slippery, it's dangerous, it's hard to travel. And so the Koen Gadol, in order to combat their tefillah, has to say to Hashem, no, nevertheless, make it rain. We need the rain. So Rabbi J.J. Shafton wonders, why does the Kohen Gadol have to... Hashem just won't listen to their tefillah. If Akash Barba wants it to rain, that's what's on the Koen Gadol's mind. Kodesh Kadashan, Motzah Yom Kippur, don't listen to their tefillah, make it rain nonetheless? And the answer is yes. Is there a more genuine tefillah than the person who's commuting, who's outside, who's exposed, who's vulnerable, who desperately doesn't want it to rain? Because that's such a heartfelt and authentic tefillah, the only thing that could combat it is the Koin Gadol Yom Kippur, the Kodesh the more authentic, the deeper, the more be'emes, the more honest and real artfila, the more khanan, the more it earns Hashem's compassion. That's what the Ramban, the Rashbam are explaining, not just for the tzaddik, even for the one who is less than the tzaddik. As always, there's so much more to say, but have a great week.